Well, if that doesn't prepare your hearts for worship, you may need to check your pulse. Amen. We are entering into what uh, I consider is the heart of the book of Titus. In fact, we covered this same passage last week, and uh, this probably won't be the last time we look at this same passage because I believe this is a, a central piece to the entire book. If you understand this passage, it allows you to understand the rest of the book. If you miss this part of the book, uh, then you're going to have difficulty understanding how the rest of the book fits together. Uh, so it's of utmost importance we kind of uh, get this passage. And uh, as a result of that, we're going to review a little bit about what we talked about last week before jumping in. Uh, the, the, the emphasis last week was the dynamics of these uh, three pillars of Christianity, these three essential elements. Uh, we talked about grace, glory, and godliness. And, and we talked about how when we look back to the grace that has appeared, that's what motivates and equips us to live godly lives in the present and we're also motivated and, and moved towards godly living in the present age by the anticipation of the appearing of Christ's glory. We talked a little bit about how that situation should affect us. The grace that has appeared in Christ's first coming. The glory that will appear in his second coming. If you know your origin and your destination, it helps you to live better in the present. And we defined those terms a little bit, uh, just as review or update for those of you who weren't here. We, it's helpful that we have, all have the same definitions. Uh, the, the definition of godliness that we've been working with is living under the authority of God while reflecting the character of God. Living under the authority of God while reflecting the character of God. That's a little bit unusual for us because we don't think hierarchically. We live in a, a very uh, democratic, a very equal society. So mo most often uh, when you're thinking of how to relate to others, it's a, it's a sideways relationship. But in, in much of the world, in, in, in much of nature, and particularly in our relationship with God, it's a hierarchical relationship. We must be properly submitted under Him. And one of the ways we rebel is we try and take his position on ourselves. He is the king over all. He is the Lord of lords. He is the judge over the earth. There are certain characteristics he has that if we try and take on for ourselves, certain roles he, rather he has, that if we try and take on for ourselves, it's uh, usurping his authority and rebelling against his rule. If you try and play, take the place of the king, if you try and play, take the place of the judge, if you try and act as the father rather than the child, it causes relational disharmony and is a form of rebellion against him. While we don't take his position or his authority, we want to reflect his character. That is, the God that we serve is a God of love. He's a God of grace. He's a God of justice. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of righteousness. And His people are to reflect His character. 
So we define godliness as living under the authority of God while reflecting the character of God. We also uh, talked about grace a little bit. We, we define that. We say that's a word we use a whole lot. Uh, but sometimes the longer you l- use a word, sometimes you forget what it actually means. It's also helpful to have definitions in case you run into uh, new believers. I, I ran into, or, or an un- unbeliever, somebody who doesn't know what it is. Grace is a really churchy word. In fact, I was around a new believer, and uh, you know, me and a couple other guys are, are trying to encourage him and strengthen him in his walk. And he said, y'all keep saying that word grace, what's it mean? And I said, well, it's unmerited favor. He said, that's great, what does that mean? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing double church talk. I said, well, it's a free gift. It, it's something that you receive that you don't earn, that you don't work for, that, that's not owed to you. And, and we don't get this in our society exactly um, because everything seems to come with obligations or strings attached. Or, you know, you, you have the buy one, get one free sale. It's not that kind of free. No, it's something that is given, not based on anything we've done, not based on anything we've earned, but based out of the goodness of somebody else. Have you ever given somebody a gift and they say, oh, you didn't have to do that? Well, exactly. That's why it's a gift. If I had to do it, it would would be an exchange. It would be a purchase. No, the, the, the goodness of God manifests to us is in what he gives us freely based out of his goodness, not our merit, not our earning. In fact, Rodney uh, mentioned one of the two parallel passages that mirror the, our text today from Ephesians 2. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We must understand the nature of grace in order to understand these three pillars of our Christianity, of grace, of godliness, of glory. Glory, we mentioned briefly, was weightiness, majesty. Uh, something solid, something substantial. And, and it's kind of hard to define, but it's easier to illustrate. There are parts of God's creation which reveal His majesty. Uh, I, I kind of describe the feeling when you encounter something glorious is it makes you feel exalted and small at the same time. Now, For, for me, going out on a clear night outside of the light pollution of a city and seeing the myriad of stars. It's something that makes you feel elevated, yet at the same time extremely small. Going out into the mountains and seeing their strength, how solid they are, how big they are, how magnificent they are, makes you feel elevated, but at the same time small. But the stars and the mountains Don't hold a candle to the one who made them. His glory, his magnificence, is much greater than that. It's what we sing about at Christmas. It's what we anticipate during Advent season. So with that as a background, 
we're going to be looking at the same text, and we're going to be focusing in a bit on godliness. And we're, we're going to be trying to address two questions. We're, we're going to be looking a bit at uh, our identity, and we're going to be asking the questions, what has God gone through in order to make us a people? What has God gone through in order to make us a people? And then as that people, what is our purpose? Well, so with those questions in mind, let's look together at the Word of God. We're in Titus chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 15. Hear now the Word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word together. Lord, as as we gather together, we pray that we wouldn't come as disinterested parties, but as people who long to know you better. As as people who want to hear about who you are and what you've done. So that we can grow closer to you. That we would come to you to know who you are and what you've done so that we can form our identity as your people. To understand who we are. And to be motivated to act in accordance with your character and our identity, so that you might be glorified and honored here on earth. Lord, we know for these things to happen, it requires a work of your Holy Spirit in us. We ask, Lord, that you would open our ears and soften our hearts so that your work might be accomplished in us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we ask these things. Amen. One of the themes that exists throughout the Bible, by the way, I I, I encourage you, especially as the new year is starting, to embark on an attempt to read through the whole Bible. Uh, One of the most edifying things you can do for yourself as a Christian is, is to read the Bible cover to cover. Uh, And and one of the things that will happen is you'll start to notice a lot of things that you hadn't noticed before. And then you'll also start to pick up on themes and say, hey, this this keeps on happening. This might be important. One of the themes that occurs uh, throughout the Bible is this theme of one of God's desires. And one of God's desires is to have a people. One of God's desires is to have a people who live in intimacy with Him. That is, a a people who know Him personally. Not only to have a people who know Him personally, but to have a people who abide in the obedience of faith. God longs for a people who know Him intimately and abide in faith. 
We see this theme throughout the Bible. We see it in the Garden of Eden, in the the way things are set up there. God walks with Adam and Eve, doesn't he? He lives with them. He abides with them. He gives them commandments so that they can obey him in faith. We see it later on with God and his promises to Abraham to, to bring out of Abraham a people for himself. We see it in his covenants with Israel as he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. God desires to have a people for His own possession. Now, there's a a problem that occurs, though, isn't there? That that despite God's desire for this, this problem keeps showing up. It it shows up in the Garden of Eden. It, It shows up with the people of Israel. And it's a problem that has to do deal with the purity and the righteousness of God. Because of His purity and and His righteousness, He can't tolerate any evil. Now, by the way, this is a a concept that a lot of Christians, and especially non-Christians in our culture, totally don't understand. Because when, when you're concerned about corruption, you've got to have a concern for the purity of whatever you're talking about. And the world has no concern for the purity of God's righteousness. You've got to be concerned about the level of purity of something, and we care different amounts about the purity of something. If you sneeze in my front yard, I'm not going to mind that much. If you sneeze in my kitchen, I'm going to mind a little bit more. If you sneeze in my soup, I'm really going to be upset with you. Why? Because I care more about the purity of my soup than I do the purity of my lawn. The more important something is to us, the more important its purity is. And God cares deeply about His righteousness, His purity, His holiness, and He will not allow anything to corrupt it. And if he did, that would be wickedness. By the way, there's a certain form of wickedness that is the toleration of wickedness. There's a certain form of wickedness that's the toleration of wickedness. Uh, I I think of Larry Nassar, who is the disgraced Olympic doctor, who for years used his position as a physician to abuse, to molest, to exploit young gymnasts and other athletes in the Olympic system. And when you looked at the years of abuse he had done, and you think how awful it was, you know, after that initial shock, you begin to wonder, now, wait a minute, he was doing this for a long time. Who knew about it? Who kept silent about it? Who prevented it? Who tolerated that evil and allowed it to exist? There's the evil and the wickedness of the doctor, and then there's also the wickedness of those who tolerated that evil. Since we serve a God who is not wicked and does not tolerate wickedness, does not tolerate evil. 
And when we look at the sins of others, that's okay. But then we have a problem when we realize we have a part of the wickedness that God does not tolerate, that God cannot stand. The problem that keeps showing up in the Bible for God desiring to have a people is the wickedness and the evil and the sin of that people. So God has to do something incredibly radical in order to make for himself a people. We see this in the passage what occurs in order for God to have a people comes in the latter half of the passage, God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us. Christ came down that we might go up. Christ was broken so that we might be whole. Christ left his Father so that we might have access to the Father. He came down. He descended. He gave himself. What did he give himself to? He gave himself to the cross. He drank the cup of wrath that we might receive the cup of blessing from God. When we talk about the extents to which God goes to in order to make for himself a people. Is anything more radical than that? That the righteous son of God would be given up so that unrighteous sinners might enter in to the presence of God, that they might be called his children, that they might be adopted? When we look at what it costs in order to make a people who can enter into the presence of God, we begin to realize how serious it is. What did it cost? It cost Christ. His blood. His life. It's the work of Christ that gives us a new identity. We see that as well. He gives Himself to redeem us. That is to buy us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He redeems us out of wickedness, and he begins to make us a people of righteousness. God sending the Son accomplishes the incredible. Christ comes to save us from sin. And sometimes I think we have a limited view of that. When Christ comes to save us from sin, He comes to save us from sin's penalty. He comes to save us from sin's power. He comes to save us from sin's presence. The penalty has been dealt with at His first coming. When He died on the cross, He took the God's just penalty for sin on Himself so that we might escape it. The penalty has been paid at the cross. It's present is something He is working through us. We see this at the beginning of the passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, training us. What trains us? Grace trains us. You, you ever think of grace as an equipping agent in your life? Saints, part of the reasons why I, I don't think we're equipped for the work that God has called us to is because we haven't immersed ourselves in His grace. 
We haven't reveled in it. We haven't appreciated it. We haven't meditated upon it. We haven't allowed it to work in and through us. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Christ comes to save us from sin. Its penalty, its presence is being worked out by His grace. He also came to remove the presence of sin. We'll see this in glory. There's a part of us that still loves to sin. There's a, there's a part of us that we're still having to fight with, that we're in tension with, that wants to do things we don't want to do. Saints, when, when Christ comes again, He finally and fully deals with the presence of sin. He says, when we see Him, we will be made like Him. I can't wait for that battle to be over. I get worn down by it. It, it, it wears me out. I'm, I'm so excited for the return of Christ just for that reason alone. There's a lot of reason to be excited, but that's one of the ones I'm really excited about. Christ is coming again. We have in Christ an answer to sin's penalty, to sin's power, and to sin's presence. By the way, there's an, a, a new identity that we receive as the people of God. And, and part of that new identity is understanding that process through which Christ is working in us, on us, and through us. With the new identity also brings a new purpose. By the way, what you view yourself as has a huge effect on how you act, doesn't it? Who you view yourself as has a huge effect on who you are. You know, if you, if, if you think of yourself as a doctor, that's going to affect the way you act. If you think of yourself as a minister, that's going to affect the way you act. If you think of yourself as a lawyer, that's going to affect the way you act. If you think of yourself as somebody who is in the people of God, that He has redeemed and called to a specific purpose, it should change the way in which you live. There's a new purpose we have. What is, our, what is our purpose as a people? The purpose, I believe, is godliness. That's described in a, in a lot of different ways in this book. And as we address godliness, one of the pair subjects you always have to address when dealing with godliness is holiness. Holiness... Uh, is a concept that women understand more than men. And I know this because I've been into bathrooms that have been set up by women. And when you go into a bathroom that's set up by a woman, there are, are certain things that you aren't allowed to use. There are, are certain uh, towels that you aren't allowed to use. There are certain soaps that you aren't allowed to use. Now, the reason you aren't allowed to use them is because they are holy. <laughs> what holy means is set apart. So they're, they're set apart, and you are one of the things, especially if you're the husband, if you're a guest in a home, you might actually get to use them. You know, they're not for the common people who live in the house. They're for the more important guests that arrive later. 
They're, they're set aside from something, common use, and they're set aside for something, a special use. And particularly holiness, when it refers to creatures, is describing that we have been set apart for a specific purpose and from other purposes. This was true when they consecrated the temple. They set aside the different and various elements and said, this is no longer used for common purposes. This is used for the worship of the temple. We as a people have been separated and called to a specific purpose. If being set apart is our understanding of holiness, godliness is what we've been set apart to. We see this described in the passage. There's something we're set apart from. What are we set apart from? Ungodliness and worldly passions. The things that used to control us, living in rebellion to God, living in rebellion to His purposes, following the desires of the flesh that dwelled within us. That used to be the controlling influence of our life. But now because His grace has appeared, because He has given us a new identity, we're to separate ourselves from those things by His power and His work within us. But that's not all we're called to do. We're, we're not just called to, to put off the bad. By the way, that's what some Christians think. Just as long as I avoid the bad, everything's all right. Well, not really. That just puts you in neutral. He has not only called us to set aside the evil, the wickedness, but to be active in doing good. We're not just to avoid the darkness, we're to be the light. He has set us for, He has set us apart for His purposes. What do those look like? To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. By the way, this dynamic in verse 11, he also describes again in verse 14. He gave himself to redeem us from lawlessness in the same way we are renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What type of good works? Well, living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see the parallels. There's always something from which we are separated, and then a good that we are called into. Reflecting the character and nature of our God. I, w- I wish I had more time to delve into these. Uh, just, just briefly, self-controlled means manifesting order and right relationship with ourselves. That's pretty important, isn't it? We, we mentioned earlier there's still these desires that exist within us that we're trying to fight against. We're not letting them control us, but we're letting the Spirit control us. We're not letting the lies of the adversary control us, but we're letting the Word of God control us. Being rightly ordered in a relationship with oneself is extremely important. By the way, our entire culture is built around you satisfying the desires you have for yourself. A very dangerous culture in which we live. We have... In this, a description then of living upright. What's that talking about? It's manifesting the order and right relationship with others. You know, in the early service, this has been emphasized in John. What are some of the signs that you love God? Well, you love the people that are made in His image. You treat them with honor and respect. 
You show his good works to them, his grace to them. And then godliness, manifesting order and right relationship with God. And that's a, the key one. If you're off with him, the other ones are going to be off kilter. Am I rightly relating to and understanding who God is and what he has done for me? Am I submitting to his authority? Am I reflecting his character? Uh, as, as we're closing up, I want you to notice the way he ends about describing the way this change on identity brings. He says, he will purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know who the zealots were in this day and age? Um, in order to understand who the zealots are, you have to understand a little bit of who the Romans were. Uh, the Romans were one of the most brutal, powerful people ever on the face of the earth. They had one of the longest, you know, there, there are certain times when empires get large and there are certain small empires and there are certain empires that are also long lasting, but it's very rare to have a large, long lasting empire. The Romans did it. In fact, until uh, the invention of the handgun, the Roman gladius had the record of most people killed by it. Now, that, that is a long-running reign as number one record, and it lasts long after the Roman Empire disappears. There are certain people groups that disappear because they came in contact with the Romans. They're a, a brutal people. They're a uh, people that force people to submit to them or face their wrath. And the wrath of the Romans was something terrible to behold. The Zealots were the people in Israel that thought, we're going to take on this massive world empire and overthrow them. We are committing our life, our property, everything to this cause because they knew it was likely they would lose it. But they had something that they cared about more than their lives and therefore were willing to dedicate themselves to the cause of Jewish independence. So when he says the word zealot or being zealous, it's describing a type of crazy fanaticism about something. They were crazily fanatical about Jewish independence. What are you crazy fanatical about? College football? Good food? Comfort? Your financial situation? Your retirement? Your kids? Your spouse? What are you crazy fanatical about? Scripture describes what we should be crazy fanatical about. It says good works. You need to be crazy about them. You need to be fanatical about them. You need to be radical in your commitment to doing good. Sometimes I worry about us that our desire for good is too mild. It's not strong enough. It's not bold enough, especially when you consider the lengths to which God has gone in order to show us His love, His grace, His glory. It should be something you're excited about. It should be something you're passionate about to reflect the character and the nature 
of the God who has saved us to live out the purpose for which Christ came and died and is coming again. It prepares us to be a people who can enter into his presence when we pursue his purposes here on earth. We're now going to enter into a time of remembering. Advent season is a time of remembering and anticipation. Most of the time we don't enjoy waiting, but Advent is a season when we celebrate waiting, when we celebrate in anticipation. And we're anticipating something that's already happened, the first appearing of Christ Jesus. As we look back to that in communion, we also look forward, don't we? We look forward to what Christ says He says, I look forward to the day when I get to drink this new with you in my Father's kingdom. We look back to what he's done. We look forward to being united to him. We're also reminded that he is the one who sustains us and blesses us. You ever think about the two elements in communion? Bread and wine. Bread's one of the most common things used for sustenance all over the world. Wine is something that indicates celebration. Christ is both our sustenance and our celebration. As we celebrate the Advent season, I want you to do something for me. The the two Christmas colors are red and green. Whenever you see the red, I want you to think of his blood that was poured on your behalf. That's the reason why he came at Christmas. And whenever you, want, you see the green, I want you to think that he died in order that I might become something. Green is the color of growth. He has died so that we might be made new and grow in grace and godliness. With that in mind, we're going to distribute the elements. Uh, it's a nestled cup. Once you have your cup, we're going to uh, wait until everybody has it, and then we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper together to reflect the reality that we are one body in Christ Jesus.